Nice haircut, by the way. Thanks. Went nice and short. Now, it's interesting because your beard, I think, is longer than I've seen it before. I know. I need to shave it. Ah, it, it it's a decent look. Short yeah. hair. Uh, longer beard than normal. Yeah, no, I'm looking to shave that off. Could you please just keep it for, like, another couple weeks? Just, no. Just to see how bushy no. it gets. No. Are there any Gracies that have big beards? I can't think of. No. I can think of Crone has like some scruff every once in a while. Yeah, Hajir will have a scruff every once in a while, but that's about it. Mm. Generally clean, clean shaven people. You guys just can't grow beards. <laughs> I almost bought into that. <laughs> Says, I say as I sit here with the facial hair of a seventh grader. Pretty much. Uh, s- seventh grader, like, just graduated sixth grade and yeah. gonna start seventh grade. <laughs> <laughs> We are on episode 24, and we're coming off our two-part series, the Artist versus the Strategist, that uh, we got some good feedback on, mm-hmm. and I felt good about it. I thought, yeah. uh, thought it, I, I was interested in the idea of putting, comparing both of those mindsets, because that's how I kind of broke it down, and I think other people kind of could relate to that. So today, we are moving more from the conceptual back to a technique, and okay. this week... We're going to focus on the Kimura. Is it one of the most... To me, it's one of the most versatile. You are. I am. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Thank you. You know, where I am weak, you are strong. (laughs) I am Andrew Desimone, because we do introductions here. And my... I almost said my guest. (laughs) And my inflated ego says... (laughs) I am my host is... Croyler. Gracie. Sure. Croyler Gracie and Andrew Desimone. That's who we are. <laughs> and this is the Just Jiu Jitsu podcast. Just Jiu Jitsu oh, podcast. God, we teach it. you every week. <laughs> I'll, I'll workshop that one. It's not strong. I, no, I'll admit it. <laughs> uh, so, Kimura, to me, it's a very versatile technique because, or submission, because you can. You can hit it from almost anywhere, right? Yeah, I mean, it's you could easily easily argue that it's one of, one of the most versatile submissions, but also one of the most versatile techniques. Not even just submission based, but just techniques in general. I was trying to think of every spot you could hit it from, and then virtually everywhere you can hit it from. Someone in your guard, you can hit it from side control, you can hit it from north south. Can't hit it from someone's back though, can you? If you're in their back? If you're on their back. You can submit with it, but you can definitely do things with it. You can tie that arm up, but you're not going to finish the submission from I there. I mean, you could. You I could. mean, there's a creative ways of doing everything. All right. Well, so it further, yeah, it is a incredibly flexible technique and submission. Now, to go back and define the Kimura for anyone who is unfamiliar with it, it doesn't have access to YouTube or the internet, or it's just too lazy. Or a cell phone. Yeah. <laughs> or sitting here going, I'm listening to your podcast. Explain this it. is your job to tell me. Right. Kimura would be, at its most simple of explanations, you have one of your hands grasping your opponent's wrist, mm-hmm. and the other hand comes around the back of their arm and grabs your wrist. 
Right. That also describes an American lock. Yeah. Kimura is just like reverse Americana, right? Right. Yeah. Actually, so Americana, uh, the Americana lock or the key lock um, in judo, um, it's called uh, uregirame. Um, and it literally just means bent arm entanglement. Um, and the the reverse uregirame is the kimura. And I think in Japanese is like guiku or guika or something uregirame. Um, basically just means reverse bent arm, arm, arm entanglement. entanglement. <laughs> yeah. All right. Hey, I, I, I like descriptive names. Yeah, I mean, the Japanese are good for it. So that is that is the very basic right. explanation. Mm-hmm. Kimura, it is, it's a shoulder lock. It is primarily a shoulder lock. But also, it can, it, it can it affect can, the elbow. It can, yeah, it can absolutely do damage to the, to the elbow. What determines what joint is being... Generally speaking, um, comes down to technique, flexibility, and the amount of force. So if my technique isn't correctly, I won't target the shoulder properly, which means that the energy then gets spread. So the, the torque will go through the elbow and shoulder instead of focusing primarily on the shoulder. So poor technique can cause that energy to be spread. If I get somebody who is not very flexible, who's stiff by nature, then the shoulder and the elbow are going to be tighter than usual. And if I'm applying a lot of brute force, something's got to give and then depending on which is weaker on your body or which is stiffer on your body it'll break first so if you do have good technique generally, but a, generally speaking but a flexible if you have good technique but a very flexible person then the shoulder will break if you're doing everything right so the question is if i'm doing everything right can i still do damage to the elbow absolutely it's a it's a rotating finish and if you do everything right most of your energy, most of your rotating power should go straight to the shoulder, right? But if you're pushing on a lever that's weakened, let's say somebody who's got a, an injured um, elbow or a weakened elbow joint, and that shoulder can take a lot of pressure, a lot of torque, but the elbow is not, you know, fit or, or healthy enough to take that kind of torque, the elbow can still go first, absolutely. It'd be like, um, you know, if if... If you have a, think of it just like a, a regular wrench and you're trying to either tighten or loosen a bolt, right? Can you strip the bolts if you have the right wrench? Probably not. It's difficult. But can it happen? Well, yeah. You know, if you don't have a proper gripping on the bolts, you can still strip it, right? Mm. As you see the Kimura as it's moved throughout development in jujitsu, did it start from more of a side mount submission? Oh, absolutely. Okay, so yeah. if we go all the way back to the introduction of the Kimura to Jiu-Jitsu, it has an interesting <laughs> origin story. So, I mean, if we're way back... Yeah, I mean, let's, like, yeah, let's start <laughs> If back we're way back... With there, Adam and Eve. Right, go back to our Greek mythology. Right, yes. Right, because the expert... No, um, I think, I, think, uh, the, the, I think if we go back far enough, the first time that there are references to a Kimura-like attack is back like in the 15, 1600s. And you see it pop up throughout time in different parts of the world. You know, you obviously see it in wrestling. Um, I think wrestling, they call it a wrist lock or a double wrist lock. Um, uh, you see it in, in Europe. It was, you saw it in different kinds of styles like shoot fighting. You'll see some attacks like that. 
kung fu calls it like the chicken wing you know what i mean like it's mm. maybe not necessarily a kimura but the approach is the same um and and in japanese jiu-jitsu it's been around forever um like i said they called it udagarami Ju- japanese jiu-jitsu eventually became judo and then that eventually got to brazil right and that's where the the introduction to the gracie family to japanese jiu-jitsu came about and and all that but um when the the real key pivotal moment the moment that brazilian jiu-jitsu accepted or incorporated kimura the the now kimura submission at the time the udagirame into the art was when my grandfather fought kimura and my grandfather said that if i am to lose to to kimura it'll be because <laughs> he does something to me that i've never seen before and he was one of the best jujitsu uh judo guys at yes. the time yeah he was he was arguably the best of his generation from japan from japan mm-hmm. had his own school there yep yep well he i don't know if he had his own school at the time um he might have had at some point in the future um i believe he was training at kodokan at the time okay. which for instance purposes is the mecca of martial arts so your grandpa's in brazil he's competing he's fighting people uh kimura doesn't want to give him the time of day at first right so he sends right. over one of his yeah he sent, guys. he sent two guys one of them um the first match ended in in like a controversial draw they fought again my grandfather beat the guy the second time and then they he sent somebody else and my grandfather choked him i think it was kato and my grandfather choked him from guard he got tossed around like a rag doll but he eventually got got a cross collar choke from guard so he beats both of these guys. Kimura then all of a sudden has to take him seriously. Well, he's got to step in now. Yes, he's had two of his guys just get. <laughs> I mean, like, <laughs> what de- do you do? defeated by some small guy nobody. who's some in Brazil, nobody, right. and as far as they were concerned, probably practicing some bastardized version of judo. Correct. Yeah. So he comes over, and then you said your grandpa starts. Did your grandpa say if he never says he would beat Kimura? Like, my grandfather was very good about never claiming that he could beat anybody else. He just claimed that they couldn't beat him. So he wasn't claiming, like, that he would come out the victorious. He just claimed he wouldn't come out the loser. He wasn't the Conor McGregor of his day. No. No, but it, but it was very slick wording, right? Because if he says, I won't lose, it is it buys him a whole lot more freedom than if he says, I will win. Because a draw benefits him. Mm-hmm. He didn't lose. Well, and then on the other end, Kimura says, "If I don't beat him in three minutes, in three minutes, the little man, the little man in three minutes." Yeah, yeah I, so Kimura goes, "Oh, that's nice. You're choosing your words carefully. Let me just go over the top and say, if I don't beat you in this amount of period of time, I'll consider it a loss." Well, I mean, you got you got a picture on Kimura's side, right? Uh, you know, he was known and qualified and had all the titles, had all the experience. And nobody could beat him. And then he comes in to visit this person. He's got no idea what my grandfather looks like. He's never seen a picture of him. Probably knows very little about what kind of what he's actually doing. Right. He shows up and sees this guy that's older than him by five or six years. And, you know, far smaller. What, what kind of feeling would you have, you know? You're probably thinking, first of all, how in the world did this guy beat? my guys this right. must be a fluke of right some so guy. now i have to i have to not just beat him i have to like demolish him to yes. show that it, you know that there is no doubt in anybody's mind yeah my name's on the line my 
martial art is on the line. Right. The cut my country that, right. is, that right. developed this martial art is on the line. So yeah, so he comes in and reasonably he had all the rights to be, you know, yeah. It, you know, modern day equivalent would maybe be if a chi guy came into our school and said, "Listen, you guys think that you have the the corner on martial arts with this jujitsu, but you haven't seen what I can do." And like he like looked at one of like one of his students was there, and like he like force choked him, and his student fell on the ground. And you're giggling, thinking, "Well, all right, class, if I can't beat this guy right. in 30 seconds, <laughs> then I'm the fool." And then once the bell goes, he looked at you and just starts force choking you, and you like look to all your students with this look of terror of "I've been wrong all these years." Except that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> but if it was. <laughs> Oh man, if that happened, we all would just put our heads down and then I would stop following all the uh, comic <laughs> all, all the comical Instagram videos I do of silly martial yeah, arts. No, so you know, my grand my grandfather just said if you know, if I lose it'll be to something I've never seen before. And Kimura applied his you know, his favorite you know, his, eventually he got to his favorite position. He threw my grandfather around quite a bit. Um and he was a big, strong guy. Yeah, man. Like, Japanese guys aren't very big until they're very big. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, he looked like a football player in a gi. Right. right. Yeah. And uh, eventually he, he got the kimura on my grandfather from, from side mount, stepped over the head, and, and he pulled the arm behind my grandpa's back. And my, my grandpa never taps the kimura. Not that I'm romanticizing his loss there. Like, I'm just saying be smarter than my grandfather and just tap. Mm-hmm. But my grandfather refused to tap, and uh, his brother threw in a towel when when he heard my grandfather's my grandfather's shoulder break. Yeah, and when you're rolling with your friend on a Wednesday night at the gym, you don't have as much to prove as he had no. in that moment. No, <laughs> there's not as much on the line. No, and and to be fair, my grandfather lasted like I think it was like 13 minutes. Um, so so he so did more than four times what right was right. initially said by Kimura. Yeah. So he comes out of that. He was what well, he was beaten by something he hadn't seen so that that is what he had expected and then after that also won over the respect of Kimura yeah Kimura actually went to the hospital and saw my grandfather um and he uh he asked my grandfather to go teach in Kodokan and my grandfather refused said no thanks no thanks and then Kimura said oh this is awkward Uh, right um, well I guess I'll hit the old dusty trail so that's that's the origin story that's how Kimura's came into the jiu-jitsu world. Oh, one question I had was, oh. what do you think happened in the transition from judo to Count Como, teaching Carlson, and then uh, Elio? Where was where, where did they lose the Kimura in that? I, I don't think necessarily it got lost, right? I think it comes down to styles, right? So um, when judo, there's, there's, there's several kinds of judo. You know, there's judo instructors that will focus on like the neowaza, which is like the ground fighting, and then there's instructors that will focus more on the throws, and instructors that focus more on like the old style judo, where there's like punching and kicking, more like Japanese jiu-jitsu style, right? Um, when and 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 Jigoro Kano, the the founder of modern judo, was very much a throw artist. He wasn't. I mean, he did submissions. Don't get me wrong, but his main focus of training started on his feet, ended on the feet. You know, it was always followed, takedown followed by quick submission. And that's where the rules of modern judo come from. Most of your time is spent on your feet. 
if that takedown is perfect, you win. If not, you have to do a quick submission or you start over. Um, and I believe that when that got to, you know, to Count Coma, Count Coma went to Brazil. He's then teaching, you know, these Brazilians Japanese jiu-jitsu. It may have been one of those things where he kind of knows it, but not really, mm. you know, or it's not something he's very good at. You know, one of the biggest flaws in teaching is, generally speaking, most most instructors out there, most martial arts instructors out there will focus teaching on the things that they do best, not in the things that they their students need to learn necessarily. I think that's changing a little bit over time, but um, especially back then, you know, people like to teach what they're good at because they're good at it. And if Count Koma was not necessarily strong or good with the Kimura, then then maybe he just didn't do as much time on it. Well, and it's not as if he spent 10 years with right. them. It, it right. was just a short period of time. Right. So that would make sense that you had right. to be selective. Right. So even if he did, well, it's, it's similar to when I'm learning at our school. I, if I had to go off now and teach someone jujitsu, there would be things that I wouldn't teach them that you've taught me just because either one, I only did them a couple times or I just wasn't good at them. Right. So it could right. be something You're not comfortable, as comfortable, right? Yeah. Right. All right. So once it's brought into jujitsu and people start using it, how quickly does it take? How how, quim, how quickly does the community take to that and absorb well, it? Well, I think they took it very quickly. I mean, that was like the kryptonite, right? I mean, if my grandfather's supposed to be the Brazilian Superman, which I think there is a book called Billy Gracie, the Brazilian Superman, but um, that was a kryptonite, right? That's what got him. And and I think anything that's anything that we see that we see a big vulnerability to, especially in fighting we tend to either protect it or embrace it. And I think instead of looking to avoid the submission, we just said, hey, we want to do that to other people. And I think the community took on took it on very quickly and it became a staple of jiu-jitsu um, very, very, very quickly. So we got some of the history. Let's start to look at the mechanics mm-hmm. of the Kimura. When you start teaching it to people, mm-hmm. first of all, it's not something that's in our white belt course. Right. It's something that you can learn as a white belt through our, like our comp classes and other right. avenues, but it's not a part of the core right. curriculum. Is right. there? What's the reason for that? Um, I think the I think Kimura has to do a proper Kimura. There's a lot of moving parts that need to be kept track of. They need to be aware of. They need to control and systematically build to to a finish. That um, you're you're you know, plain Jane or your, you know, average Joe that comes in there. It's too, you have to expect too much mm-hmm. of them to do. It's easy. Like an arm bar, the mechanics are very simple, right? You thrust your hips. There's more to an arm bar, of course, but anybody can thrust their hips and be successful. Um, just like a guillotine. There's a lot of steps to a guillotine, but any, anybody can squeeze in heck, you know, but if I say, Hey, you have to control the arm so it doesn't move outside of this particular angle. And then you got to get this hand to come over here, maintain the angle so that the arm rotates just right all the way through without extending the arms away from your body. Do this so with your hips. And- so there's no space, right? Mm-hmm. And you don't, you're not using muscles. So you got to use your upper body against upper body, not, you know, arm against arm. And your grips have to be in this particular spot. There's a lot there. And I think it's very easy to overwhelm. A, a newcomer with a kimura 
and even to the ones that you don't overwhelm, the people that have a little bit more talent or a little more feel to it, they may still have a harder time being successful with that than a more, a more simple move. All right, that makes sense. So when we look at the mechanics, we talked earlier about what it was exactly. What do you start to teach once you have, once you start that class for Kimura? You, What are the things that you're saying, all right, here's what we have to do, guys. Break, st- pretend that we're in your... <laughs> Class. Kimura 101, <laughs> and you're you're starting where, us off. Where, where am I teaching the Kimura from? Uh, you're in a an alleyway in Boston. There are. <laughs> I meant like, am I like inside Mount Guard? Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Do you want me to explain like an area that you could be in, or just that's not important? That's not really. Okay. Not you're important te- all right. Well, you're teaching in an alleyway. Okay. All right. Is it dirty? It's very filthy. Okay. There, it's been raining a lot, but so, it's in so the middle so, of summer. So I'm gonna be on top then, yeah. So I don't have to. You know, <laughs> that, that would be the smart decision yeah, to be okay. on top, yeah. All right. And you have just this person who walked up to you on the street and said, "Hey, you have a jujitsu shirt on. Can you teach me the kimura here in this alleyway?" And you're you go, "Yeah, of course." Yeah, because it's not shady. Yeah. Yeah. Your wife's like, "Could we keep walking to to go get sushi?" I, the, I'm uncomfortable with this situation. So we find ourselves in the alleyway. What are you telling the stranger? Well, the the first thing with the Kimura, I, I very, very much start with, I don't necessarily teach a setup. I think that comes later. Um, I, I teach gripping first. This is the grip that you need to achieve in order to be able to move forward, right? How we achieve that grip would be the setup, and that's something later, right? So. I would say, you know, you want to get a cross grip, meaning my right arm to your left arm or your le- or my left arm to your right arm. And then my opposite arm, my free arm, then goes around your arm to my wrist, very much like you said. And then I would start breaking down angling, right? So let's say let's say we're in let's say we're north and south. So my right hand grabs your left, my left hand goes around your right arm back behind, like around the tricep, through to the right, forearm. Right, and then I would say, okay, I need to have a 90 degree angle. So I wanna have my wrist, my grip on your wrist as close to your wrist as possible because that's the end of the lever. It gives me the most power when I decide to apply pressure. And then I'm gonna get my hand, my, my hand that's gripping my own wrist <coughs> and grip as close to my wrist as possible. Again, because that becomes the lever for mm-hmm. my second hand. And then I would break down the idea of the function of each arm. The hand that holds your wrist is my push hand. The hand that controls my wrist is my pull hand. And um, also the way that you're gripping your wrist is right. I, li- I like the monkey grip, yeah, where you have no thumb, so it's a thumbless grip. You can hurt your thumb if it's this um, way, right? You can hurt your thumb, and and if you got a guy who likes wrist lock, they can they can very much wrist lock you from from that kind of grip. Okay. Um, Mechanically speaking, as far as finishing the submission, it makes absolutely zero difference. It's more protecting your thumb and your wrist from, you know, casualties. people like you. Yeah, people like me, yeah. jerks. <laughs> um, so once you get those grips and you have your, you understand the, the functions of your arm, then we talk. Okay, so we got the grip. Now we need to look to control the submission because you can have a very good, you know, grip and very little control. Think like if you got an arm bar and you hold somebody's wrist, but you don't control their body with your legs, you have nothing. Mm-hmm. So then I would say something along the lines of, we need to pull their their arm so that their elbow gets tight against our sternum. And then if we're north and south, if we're thinking of like a north and south Kimura, right? Pull their elbow to your sternum, 
make sure that their elbow is in line with their shoulder. So um, essentially, it should run off the clavicle from the shoulder down their humerus to their elbow. It should all be one line. And then I would pull their wrist out a little bit so that we have a 90 degree angles between their um, chest and their bicep and between their bicep and their forearm. So essentially we have uh, the 90 degree angle is kind of the key thing for Kimura's, right? And um, so we, we lift, make sure that the um, elbow is in line with the shoulder, make sure that their elbow is tight to our chest so there's no separation because if their elbow separates from our elbow, we lose the Kimura. And then once we get to that point, we have the optimum place to deliver damage to the shoulder, right? But we still don't have control of the body. We have control of the shoulder and control of the arm, but not of the body. And that's where I would say, okay, now we need to start controlling the body. And there's a number of ways of doing that. You can pinch the head so it faces the ground, um, or you can drive your hip onto the <coughs> collarbone. So if you drive your hip into the collarbone, if you have a Kimura on their left side, sorry, yeah, on their left side, your right hip would drive down on their um, right collarbone. And you wanna put as much weight as you can on that. And what that would do is it would push them flat or push them 45 degrees off the ground, so to speak. Bring your leg, Your it'll be your left leg if you're doing Kimura on their left arm, your left leg over their head, which is very much the Kimura that, my, that Kimura got my grandfather with. And we would then get our elbow, that's our push hand elbow on the mat or on the ground. And that's just a guarantee that their arm stays in a proper angle. Once everything is aligned, is, is lined up, I have control of the body, I have control of the arm, you run a systems check. Did any of the angles change? Are my grips in the right spot? If everything is holding true like it should be, then we push with our push hand. We're trying to push their wrist behind their back and we pull with our pull hand where we try to extend our pull arm. And what that does is it's gonna focus the rotation around the shoulder joint. And that should break the shoulder for all intents and purposes. Good explanation. Thanks. A little more long-winded, right? No, no, that was good. I like that. It's which, which is it's why I don't teach it to white belts. <laughs> <laughs> well, and not only that, it's even harder to explain it with nothing visual when, when they're not watching. With a right. white belt, if you fail with, if you have no more words to explain it, and you can just say, and then you this and you you can do it with your body so well done explaining that what about when someone gets into side control and they try to get a kimura on someone it seems like a pretty common problem that beginner kimura attemptees to run into is i don't have clearance like i i'm trying to go for this kimura and the mat's in the way so you're looking at setups right yeah so um so setting up a kimura there's a variety of very creative ways of doing it um, ultimately, what what needs to happen in order to do a proper Kimura, just like a lot of submissions, you need first isolation. The rule of thumb in submitting, in causing a submission to occur is isolation. Whatever target you're aiming for needs to be isolated from the rest of the body. If I go for a choke and your arms are free, I'm gonna have a hard time closing the choke. But if I can isolate your head away from your body, even for a a brief moment, I can get much further ahead, right? If I try to armbar you and I don't deal with your free arm, what happens? I end up with an armbar where you're fighting me 
and then I can disarm your, your, your fighting, but ultimately the arm is not free for me to attack. So in a Kimura, there are three things that are going to work, generally speaking, three things that will always work against you. One, if you're on your back, let's say you're on top and you're trying to play Kimura, the floor protects them. Mm. That's that's the first problem. The second problem is um, for you to be able to cause that rotation, you need to have space to move into that, you know, to move them into that space. So if I want to take your hand and the floor is on the ground, I need to take your hand behind your back through the floor. Mm. So not, not so you have to be very strong and no. push through the floor. So my point is, it's not only difficult getting your arm around their arm. Even if you get there, you may not have the room to move, you know, to do a proper move because there's not there's no room to move into. Um, and then the the last issue is people forcing a Kimura that's not there. You get the grip, you think you got it, you force by yanking them, they're back off the ground and then muscling their arm through. And usually when you do that, you create space and then people slip out and your Kimuras get janky. That kind of goes into another area I wanted to talk about. And that is for the longest time, I thought that Kimuras were the submission of the strong man. Right. Thought that I'm only gonna hit Kimuras on um, the little babies and children. so children. <laughs> so for the longest time, man, I tore the shit out of my nephew's shoulders. They're three and four. Man, it, they're never going to be the same. I, but, I can only imagine. Yeah, but that's that's you know I just had to work with what I had. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> but then I learned that even I could hit Kimuros on people. Absolutely. What does a wee little man like me do to hit a Kimura on a larger guy? And it's funny we talk about it now. Because in class, we're, we are going over the, that yeah. exact thing now. And right. if someone's in your guard and you're pulling, you get a Kimura and different. So I think, I think, so I think that the, the thing to keep in mind, right? So if you're saying I'm physically not as strong as somebody else, how can I make this work on somebody who is physically far stronger than I am? Um, so before before we break it down, right, the, the, the thing to keep in mind is if you can make them work in a way that's physically inefficient and you can work in a way that's physically efficient, there will be a like a synergy that happens there where not not only are they weaker, but you are also stronger, right? Because um, if you think of like, like video game characters, right? You can debuff somebody, right? You can make them work inefficiently, but it doesn't make you any stronger. They, they're just weaker. <coughs> the same way that you can operate physically efficiently while not affecting their performance at all. And that's like a buff to you, right? Mm -hmm. But the, the key, especially when there's a strength difference or a size difference is to compound those things where you, you debuff them and you buff yourself. So you, you make them work inefficiently while working very efficiently yourself okay how do you deal with managing your mana capacity <laughs> oh my god we're moving on <laughs> sorry you just started talking video games and i started thinking of health I just, bars I just, and... I just figured it'd be easy to explain <laughs> no that was, that was a good explanation so um you know if you if so let's talk about just making them operate physically inefficiently right so if you get your grips in the right place and you pull the elbow to your chest 
and you create the right angles, the 90 degree angles that we mentioned before, and you drive your hip on their collarbone and get your elbow to the mat, what you've done is you've isolated their arm so that there's no way that their free arm can come out and help. So at this stage, any fighting that you would do would be, and we're not talking about finishing mechanics, we're just talking about controlling mechanics. At this stage, any attempt you'd have to break or control would be one arm that's in a physically deficient position trying to defend itself all on its own. And and that's very tough to do. It's like washing just one hand with just one hand. Mm-hmm. You know, it, can, can it be done? Not very easily, right? And then when we add proper controlling mechanics where we've, the controlling mechanics makes them work, makes them work physically, you know, inefficiently. And then if we then talk about proper finishing mechanics where we know to twist our body, so we're using our whole body to create a rotation, we're, we're using our arm to push at the end of the lever so it gives us better leverage, and we're pulling at the end of our push arm so it adds to that power, and the rotation is good and everything is efficient, then we're also applying our entire body now to, we're dedicating our entire body now to breaking one joint, which is very, very easy to do especially when you have opposing forces and rotation like we do in a Kimura. Has Kimura changed much over the years? Yes and no. I think think there are more ways of getting a Kimura, more setups to get into Kimura. Because there's more setups, there's a wider array of applications. People can use it to pass the guard. You know, they can use it to threaten from any position. Um, I think that um, I think that Kimura has become more than just submission, which we can talk about in a little bit. Um, but as far as like the breaking mechanics, I think it, it it's not necessarily gotten better. I think it's got better explained, right? And I used to think, oh man, like the Kimura is getting better. It's getting better. Like the way we finish it today is not the way we finished 10 years ago or the way that people finished 30 years ago. And it's not the way that people finished 60 years ago, but it's the way that Kimura tapped my grandfather. So I don't think necessarily that it's better. I think that because Kimura was so poorly introduced to jujitsu, right? Once Kimura attacked my grandfather, then, and we, we absorbed that into the jujitsu, people are simply working off of the imitation. They're, they're copying what they remembered or what they thought they saw from the match with Kimura. Because even back then, yes, the match was recorded, but it wasn't widely available. So I think the dissemination of the original Kimura was very was very poorly, poorly done. And I think over time, we've sharpened it, we've sharpened it, we've sharpened it. And now when we look at guys who are very, very good Kimura um, players, they're oftentimes finishing in exactly the same mechanics that Kimura finished my grandfather. You've mentioned a couple of times that the Kimura is the submission and then is like a technique or a concept. Right, right, right. right. What, what do you mean by that so, concept? So Kimura can, can also be a position, right? So if we think of position as a form of control and submission as a form of finishing a fight, um, Kimura is not only a submission, it is also a position. You know, you can control movement and behavior you can dictate and 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 um force certain movements out of your partner and out of your opponent with it um well you mentioned recently some people who will purposely 
have a person shoot on them. So it exposes the arm. To expose that right, arm. Would right. that be what you're kind of talking about um, in that? Yes it, and no. That's more of a tournament thing, and we can talk about that too. Um, but I mean, like, if we look at... Um, uh, I, I hate... And I don't hate... I've never met the dude. Um, and I don't hate him. I, I think he gets credit for this because he came out with the DVD first. I don't think he was the first to this. In fact, I don't think he was the first by a long margin, but... Um, yeah, David Avalon, I think he fought in ADCC, I want to say early 2010s ish, somewhere around there, circle there. And then he immediately came out with this system called like the Kimura Trap, right? And, and, and a lot of schools reference it now as the Kimura Trap because he marketed it that way. Um, I believe Donaher calls it the, the T Kimura, you know, it's the same, same thing. It's just a different marketing campaign. But um, the idea is to use the, the threat of the Kimura as a submission to manipulate and control the outcome in regards to your opponent's movement. So if I, if I grab a Kimura, what would you do if we're grappling? You're going to address the most important issue, which is... I'm going to try to get my turn, get my elbow you gotta, out. you got to get the arm free. Yeah. I mean, if you got to save your arm, you got to make sure I'm not tapping you, you got to get it out of there. Meanwhile, I can still move the rest of my entire body in ways that benefit me and ways that don't benefit you, right? Mm -hmm. So I can use it to pass your guard. I can use it to, um, you know, get to a position like side mount and just hold it and just hold it as a pin, keep you there. I can fall over in north and south. That's where the Kimura trap originally got dubbed from, you know, and from that position, you will always have to operate under the risk of a Kimura, which means that how you move is limited or predictable. And if I know how you're gonna move and I've can and I and I've mapped out those patterns of movement, then I can set up other things like back takes, arm bars, triangles. I can do, you know, um, like I said, guard passes as before. I can do butterfly, close guard, half guard. You can do a number of different things. And, and all because the threat of the Kimura is very real if you look at the kimura aspect of being able to control someone mm -hmm. does that offer more control than other techniques or other submissions i would think like an arm bar it offers more because an arm bar is kind of a, a you so the, the thing with the kimura is that you have such a gigantic lever and you 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 have two arms on one and with those with that grip the particular grip right should the wrist get past the opponent's body their upper body they're tapping mm -hmm. because the shoulder cannot take that rotation right which means that you can deliver a very large amount of torque the shoulder joint should you let's say put your hand on your belly so and maybe grip your gi so that the hand does not go behind your back right does that imply that the person applying the kimura generates any less torque and, and force no they're still delivering that same amount the only difference is instead of the energy taking your hand behind your back it's taking your hand through your belly, 
right? And and I can use that force to control how far you sit up. I can control, I can use that force to keep you pinned to the mat. So I think because of that, Kimura becomes very versatile. You can, from the bottom, you can use that pressure, that same torque and force to create sweeps and reversals. Um, so I think because a Kimura can be used as a, as a form of control, as a, as a pin, as a form of um, submission, and as a transition to other spots, not just controlling and submission, but also as a transitional sequence into different things, I think Kimura becomes very quickly one of the more versatile techniques in jiu-jitsu, in, in grappling, period. It seems also like it does allow for more freedom to transition than a lot of other things because you are only for that submission you're only tied up in your, your arms right arm bar you have your legs and your hips right. so your whole lower half of the body which is mo- is responsible for most of your body's mobility right. is tied up so it does allow you to right to do quite a bit more yeah yeah kimura is very versatile very tough to deal with if you get a guy who's good at kimuras it's usually difficult to fight them um you know for for tournaments kimura is an excellent technique if you if you apply a kimura or actually this is just rule rule playing right like i mentioned some people will let their opponents shoot on them so they can go for a kimura and that's mostly because if you have a submission locked in your opponent can't score so who cares if they take you down if it means getting a submission mm-hmm. or at least the threat of a submission that you then can use to either control, transition, or submit your opponent? Yes, yes, I agree. I approve of all that. Um, um, I'm, that was I'm this was all a test I'm glad you to see if you to see if you understood <laughs> Kimura, and I'm giving you a B plus. A B plus, sweet. Which is good because I've given you D's and C's for the rest of these podcasts. Sweet, moving up. You haven't seen that part of our website, have you? Where no. I have a report card for all your <laughs> progress. Yeah, I have a progress report. Yeah, sweet. Okay, before we end this one, we have an email from a listener. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is from Bonnie. She said, "Hello, Croyler and Andrew. Andrew, you're amazing. Thank you for what you do, Croyler. It's a waste of time. Stop. Um, you're terrible." I'm sorry, Bonnie. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I, I misread that. So you guys uh, have a, <laughs> you guys have a couple of episodes about BJJ giants and often met- mention <laughs> these oh. giants and legends throughout your podcast. I'd like to study them and watch footage of their matches, but I feel like YouTube is limited in the, in the amount of footage there is to watch. So essentially what she's getting to is, is there an area for matches, for highlights where she could study these things um, from like beginning to end? What's the best way to find this footage for these BJJ people or figures, historical matches, new ones, all the people we talk about? Is it something you use YouTube? Is it, there's like a better archive somewhere, flow grappling? Is that enough just studying their matches? So I want to be a little bit of a smart ass and then I'll give her an answer. I, so. I think you, you, you've, you've <laughs> put a little bit of stank on all your responses. <laughs> like, you know, show me footage of the best skateboarders, the most historical skateboarders ever. You you can't. You can only start looking from the moment where it became popular, right? Because that's where footage became available. And there's a, you know, jujitsu, there's footage out there, but like a lot of the historical matches are recordings of a recording. Somebody had a VHS and somebody recorded that VHS. And at some point, 
somebody digitized that thing and then it shows up as bits and pieces on online, right? Um, so it's tough because jiu-jitsu is not a mainstream sport. It, it, you know, the access to recording equipment in Brazil was not nearly as fast as it, as it was here in America. So only the, the wealthier people would have it in the 60s, 70s, 80s, you know? It's impressive we have some of the footage footage that we do have of your grandpa competing right. or like the Gracie Challenge stuff where they would just take camera cameras right. out into the streets. Right. So, you know, it's not like today where any 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 idiot can pull out a phone and record it, you know? Um, so, so that's part of the difficulty. And I get it. It's frustrating because, you know, we mentioned some of these you know, legends and you want to look them up and you just can't. Right. So YouTube is a great resource. Um, it's important to know which matches you're looking for. And a lot of those matches aren't named, let's say Andrew versus Croyler. They're, they're named as to what happened. Right. So there's a historical match, uh, between Hicks and Gracie versus Ugo Duarte. And if you look at that match up online, for years on YouTube, you couldn't find it. You'd have to look at Hickson fights at the beach and you'd find it. <laughs> I've seen that video. Right. And that was right. the title. Right. You, you, but, but that's not, you know, that was a fight. Ugo was a very good fighter on his own credit, you know, but his name's not mentioned. So like if you're looking for specific matches and the match and, and these are old fights, you might be better off just being very generic with it. So-and-so fights some guy, you know, or this tournament and just look up those matches and you, you kind of have to pinpoint the grainy who is who, you know? Um, so that's one thing. The, the other is, uh, flow grappling has done a great job of archiving the newer matches and covering the newer competitions, but nothing of the older stuff. So if you're really interested in finding old, old footage, my best advice is to find somebody who lived in that time period. Odds are they'll have a recording somewhere. Um, they may have an old VHS that's got mold in it and you can watch, you know, grainy black and white or choppy video. So find, if you want to see a video of Hickson, send him a letter. <laughs> I don't think that's going to And work. <laughs> say, dear Hickson, handwrite it. May you please send me a VHS? <laughs> well, what I, what I mean is like, so, you know, I, uh, you know, I've seen matches with Marcio back in the day online. Right there, there are a couple on, on YouTube that people have uploaded throughout the years. Mm -hmm. But when I first started training with him, he had a box full of VHS tapes, and I'm like, "What are all these?" I goes, "Oh, some of these are some of my old matches." And it was like, you know, Jiu-Jitsu Cup 1984. You know what I mean? Like before I was born, and I popped this VHS in, and it's like he had like this hour-long match, you know. And it's all grainy and it's black and white and it's a very fun match to watch, but it's never been digitized. And even if it is digitized and they upload it realistically with how picky, how first world we are about our, you know, quality of video, who's going to sit there and watch an hour of black and white grainy video that at some point cuts in and out, mm -hmm. you know, I know I, I I'm guilty of that being so 
choosy in the quality of a video I watch yeah. now that as soon as I see something that the sound yeah. quality is poor, <laughs> I go, nope, done. This is only 4K. It's not 5K. <laughs> Which, speaking of poor sound quality, thank you for still listening, everyone. They're yeah. probably going, if we, if we had high standards for sound quality, we would be done with this show long ago. Right, right, right. <laughs> But yeah, so it is, it's easier now, nowadays to find stuff, yeah. but what you'll find if you're looking at some of these, you know, these BJ giants that we talk about, the best thing to do is to look for documentaries on them. Um, because in those documentaries, the, the, the people that are producing those documentaries are, um, they found footage. They did the legwork, right, so you don't right. necessarily. Now, you may not see the whole match, right? Because it is a documentary. There's only so much footage time. But you'll see, you know, a solid minute or two minutes of a very important match there. You know, yeah, you got to dig through 20 minutes of footage. But you, you'll find that one or two minutes, it's worth gold. Um, a guy that I mention a lot that I bring up a lot is Tay Today, right? Um, if you look up Tay Today, full matches, there's only like... A dozen of them on YouTube but if you look up documentaries or other people interviewing people about him you'll they'll show brief clip of a different fight that you maybe you haven't seen before and 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 you know it, that's that's kind of how you have to dig around or if you have access to an instructor who's been around the game who has connections or who who himself has been around for a while and, and can you know find that footage for you that's another way to go too that's how i found a lot of the old stuff is even doing research for this when we did a holes episode right. watched different holes documentaries and you right. can i think one of the coolest bits of footage that i found was holes rolling with um hickson right and it was clearly just like in class with your grandpa right. standing in the background and that only came out a few years ago on youtube it was only posted on youtube like Five or six years ago. Wow. Do you know who had that footage that released no. it? I don't know who released it. I know a lot of people who had that footage, the same exact footage, mm -hmm. but you know, no, I don't know who released it. No. That 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 was a cool window into like a oh, time yeah. that we really don't get to see. Right. Like behind the lines of them actually training together. Right. It, it hopefully, hopefully you Gracie start releasing some some of that footage as time goes on. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like there's a whole footage with Hickson. Did you ever hear about Hickson? I forget. Who's the guy he fought? I should know this guy's name. Oh, An Yoji Anjo. So, like, that's, like, sacred. Like, if you could find... If, if anybody can find that footage, and, like, Hickson has a copy of it. I don't think he's ever released... I think he's shown people. I don't think he's ever released it. Is that the one where this guy came from Japan to call him out in yeah, school? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, and Hickson closed the doors and... The only thing people saw was the guy walking out of there all bloodied and Hickson not. Yeah. Is it? Is there some footage out? There's like, there's like, like small bits and pieces. Okay, I think but I've seen. It, the I think pieces. it's like a. I think it's like a fifteen or twenty minute fight, and and you know. That would be so. Hickson does have that yes. video. Well, yes. maybe one of these days he'll he'll throw us all a bone and release that because I don't think so. No. No, I think for a long time it might have been a moment of pride. And then I think it was one of those things where people don't need to see the animalistic side of me. Mm. But we do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, that's a good answer for, for Bonnie. Bonnie, thank you for emailing. And everyone, if you have a question that you'd like Coraline to answer, just jujitsupodcast at gmail.com. You know, before we go, I'm going to see the new Spider-Man movie after this. Oh, that's a good one. 
Good. I'm glad to hear that. I've I've only heard reviews from you and my little sister, and both approved of it. So I've been thinking about superheroes, and I just I thought, what would what would your f- most coveted superpower be if you could choose one? If I could choose one, yeah, it doesn't have to be an existing superpower. You can make I one can up. Make right whatever. Um, yeah. Oh man, I don't know. Is there um, a superhero that you see his powers and think I would have a lot of fun with those? <laughs> I mean, obviously every superpower looks fun, right? But, <laughs> except for Rogue from X Men. Yeah, that's it, kind of a, a th- that one you can't yeah. like really have a relationship with anyone because as soon as you touch them, you like drain yeah. the life from them, <laughs> and then you don't even get their powers full time. Yeah, yeah, it's that's weak. Um, no, I I think it's tough. Nightcrawler, he that that'd be a fun power. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I have to think about that. Like, it would be cool to say something like just being like immortal would be really cool. Mm-hmm. To live forever, you know, but that's kind of a very arrogant thing to say. What about you think like more simple and something like the ability to drain or recharge someone's cell phone telepathically? <laughs> yeah. You, you could make friends and enemies so easily. If you, you just walk around the airport, you can make money around the airport because what if you had quick charging telepathic skills? You could walk <laughs> past someone and just go, drain hey, buddy. It. And their their battery's full, or you can mess with your friends, and and just slowly as they're making you angry, go, man, I could. Do you want to do this to me? And they're like, stop, stop. As they just see their battery draining, you, you got twenty percent left, man. You just have like you've given this way too much thought. <laughs> I, I just think that that's that's a that could be very valuable. Um, I think I think the telepathy would be would be very cool if you could turn it off. I, yeah, I don't know that I would want that. It would be. If you can turn it off. Yes. If you can choose when to use it, like like Xavier. Yeah, otherwise you'd be walking around with just a shattered ego all the time. Right. <laughs> or you'd have to have the thickest skin. You'd either turn into the most cold-hearted human being. Right. Or just a person who crumbles in the corner. Right. Any other superpowers? What about the, the ability to affect someone else's depth perception you can have fun with that with your friends <laughs> you're thinking of all like, the mischievous ones i'm over here thinking yeah, like you're trying mortality and telepathy and like controlling time and i'm thinking how fun would it be to watch you walk down the street and then i could make a set of stairs look like they're really close and then you would be like high stepping and awkwardly <laughs> trying to walk up invisible steps nice You've some clearly, people are clearly given some people are big picture some people just are satisfied <laughs> with little things yeah i guess so all right well that was a, that was a pretty easy that was an, i like ending. that one that was good <laughs> <laughs> i didn't make you too uncomfortable right uh oh no we will have to at some point come back to that guy and you in the alley working on that kimura because no, we're not because that. as you're finishing up you see in front of you some thugs we're, we're, we're walking not, not walking up and behind you <laughs> a couple more so we'll come back to that don't don't worry all right uh to be continued